Have you ever wanted a t-shirt featuring Bob Roll riding an ostrich? I mean, who hasn't? To celebrate the 2019 edition of the tour, Road ID has re-released their Bob Roll-inspired Let's Ride t-shirt that was a cult favorite when it was initially released back in 2012. These classy little gems are only available in very limited quantities. So if you're an admirer of Bob or ostriches, you better hurry up over to roadid.com slash B-O-B before they're gone. Olympic medalist and Tour de France podium finisher coach Bobby Julik and outskirts visionary Gus Morton invite you to put your socks on. From insightful analysis into our sport's most iconic races and racers to entertaining, educational, and actionable advice, Fizzo is an illuminating deep dive into the art and science of bike racing. Be prepared to put your socks on. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Put Your Socks On. I'm Bobby Julik. And as always, I'm here with my main man, Gus Morton. Today, we're talking about stage 18 of the 2019 Tour de France. What a stage. From Embrun to Valois, 208 kilometers, and chucking on a 9-kilometer neutral start on top of that. Gus, how'd you like that one? Mate, that was savage. That was a full three-course dinner. More, three meals in one today. That was a... (laughs) That was ridiculous out there, Uh, and there were bodies all over the place. Very glad I wasn't there, but uh, it made for good watching. It was definitely one that you were happy that you were on the couch, because I I woke up this morning, got on, and they had already covered, what, 47.5 kilometers. They just, just blasted out of the start. I didn't even get to watch the start. Mate, I was a little, did the I was a little bummed about that. Yeah, but before we get onto that, before we talk about the, uh, the stage, I wanted to bring up uh, overnight news. Um, I think you know everybody in the cycling world's probably heard of the, of, of the news and have, has their own opinions and is probably sick of hearing about it, but it would be remiss of us not to mention it. Luke Rowe and Tony Martin excluded from the race for fighting. Bobby, quickly, what's your opinion on that? I would have loved to have seen just the old yellow card instead of st- straight to the red card. But when it's on live TV yep. and everyone dissected it by blowing up the image, yeah, UCI had no choice. Um, I agree. I would have thought a yellow card would have been suffice. But hey, rules are rules and the jury has uh, made their decision. Before we get to the beast that was stage 18 of the Tour de France this year, should we get our daily dose of road ID to a trivia to get us going? All right, everyone. It's time for today's daily dose of Road ID Tour Trivia. To play, head on over to roadid.com slash tdf. Today's question, in 1919, the first year with the yellow jersey, how many riders finished the Tour de France? Go to roadid.com slash tdf to answer this question and score a chance to win today's daily prize. A Theragun G3 Pro. One lucky winner will even take home a $10,000 shopping spree. Again, that's roadid.com slash TDF. Mate, I think there's going to be uh, a few Theragun G3 pros fired up on the team buses today. Maybe even, maybe even the double, one in each hand, one for each leg, just, just getting those muscles ready for another uh, destroying day tomorrow. Let's move on to today's stage. Very hot at the start massive stage 
we thought the race was going to blow up, and it did. It didn't disappoint. Bobby, give us the uh, give us the rundown. Oh man, there was so much to say. It was just constant. So yeah, like you said, very hot start again. We the overall look of the race was one cat three, one cat one, and two horse category climbs. So the only stage that had two horse category climbs the in the entire race. Very fast start again. A massive group gets off the front of around thirty four riders, and it was interesting to see who was in the in the break. Ineos, mm. FDJ, and Dequinic only had one rider up there. Jumbo Visma had two riders up there, but they weren't really their, their climbers. Movistar jumped off the page when I saw the, the feed. Four riders in that move, including Nairo. Yeah, that was a, that was, you, you knew, I mean, you sort of knew they were going to do that, but at every time it, 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 it amazes me that they can, that they actually do it. And they always put three or four guys in those big moves. Four out of 34 riding. is amazing. Yeah. Uh, is amazing. Yeah. Trek only had one rider. Lotto Sudal had three, including Wellens, which we kind of predicted that he would have to defend his KOM jersey today by going in the break. Michelton Scott had three riders, yep. including Simon Yates's twin brother, Adam Yates. You know, I, I'm starting to wonder if they have a third brother in the truck somewhere that they can kind of switch out <laughs> because I still can't tell these guys apart. It's amazing. Like, hey, dude, it's called it's called the silent triplet yeah, syndrome. Yeah. Haven't you heard of it? It's just the one that they always have kept locked away just for... They're either really smart, so they just bring them out on the day of the exams, or they're really good at sport, and they just bring them out in the grand it's, final. So I reckon that's what It's not today. fair. I know you're identical twin brothers, but come on, wear different <laughs> shoes or different sunglasses or something, because it's getting, getting kind of confusing for us. Uh, AG2R had three riders up there, including Bardet, another... You know, impressive ride by Bardet. CCC had three riders, including Greg Van Evermet. Uh, EF had two guys up there with Woods. Sunweb had two riders, including another young German, Kamna, who we'll talk about a little bit later in the stage because he's definitely making a name for himself on the climbing stages of this year's Tour de France. But one thing I noticed Absolutely. was that there was no Bora riders. And I was confused by that. And then I went back, and they actually had one of their guys, Postelberger, as a non-starter today. So maybe fatigue or maybe a little sickness, and they just decided to play it a little safe. But, man, right from the gun, that group got off. Uh, the first KOM was won by Lusenko, who was my pick from yesterday. I guess I was one, one day off of mm -hmm. getting him in the breakaway, unfortunately. <laughs> then they came to the sprint, which really didn't matter because Sagan, all the points were up the road. Sagan didn't have to worry about anything. That was won by uh, DeBoost from the Sudal Auto team. But soon thereafter, you, you turn away from the TV to get that cup of coffee, and then you look up, and, and uh, Poles and Caleb Ewan are on the ground. And man, oh man, that... Yeah. With the stage that they had in front of them, I, I just felt for those guys, especially for Caleb. You know, you know that Walt is going to get up and, and be able to climb and contribute, but poor Caleb is going to have a hard enough time on this stage anyway. And then going down like that is just just not 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 good to see. Not good to see. But um, so yeah, then we started the Cat One, the the cold of ours. The Peloton was at about six minutes. Decoyne Quickstep was patrolling the the Peloton uh, pretty pretty good there. And at the top, we had a little foreshadowing of the, the challenge that Bardet has obviously brought to Tim Wellens. Tim Wellens got the best of them at the top of this, mm. at the top of this climb, but Bardet marked some pretty good points there. And 
we'll we'll get to that a little bit later what happened but great work by wellens taking the max points there we knew that he had to increase his buffer um but then on the descent off of that we had a crash by george bennett and nicholas roach they they tangled. I don't know yeah. what happened. All of a sudden, one guy was on the road and everyone flipping over. And man, I was a little bit nervous there for George Bennett. He did not look like he wanted to get up or could get up. But in typical George Bennett fashion, and you know him better than me, the guy's just tough, isn't he? Man, he could barely get his leg over the bike. I thought he was done for sure. I was like, man, he looks shell-shocked. Gets up, could barely get his leg back over the bike. He had to kind of lean it over. Gets on, starts rolling. It was like sitting crooked on the bike. And you're like, this isn't good. Boom, back in the group, you know, no sweat, straight back to the front and, you know, ended up riding at the front of that group until there was hardly anybody left in the race. So, oh man, dude, that guy is absolutely as tough as nails. Really is, really is. And then we get to the Col d'Isoire, which is one of the most beautiful climbs uh, in the Alps, in my opinion. Mm. It's, it's gorgeous. The Peloton, it was about eight and a half minutes behind the the group that had kind of split off from that group of 34 initial escapees, but only about six and a half minutes back to the Peloton. And that's when I started to wonder, wait a second, I predicted that this group would, the guys in this breakaway would be just there to help their team leaders. But then when it was six and a half yeah. minutes, I started to think, wait a second, these guys are going to go for the stage win. Guys like Michael Woods aren't going to sit up and wait for Rigo. This is, this is going to be on. And then I started thinking about Nairo. But t to be honest, a few days ago, I was like, stick a fork in this guy. He's done. Absolutely done. Yeah, he was cooked. Cooked. But what, what a turnaround but... he had. I mean, <laughs> but then when Movistar starts chasing Quintana or chasing, you know, setting tempo at the bottom of the yard, yeah. I was like, oh boy, they just announced that this guy's leaving the team. He's got six minutes lead, and now they're going to they're gonna ride tempo like uh man I, I it was Nairo it was Nairo versus the world today out there it looked it? like it it looked like it and that as soon as those guys started doing that that main field got small quick I couldn't even call it a peloton let's call it the yellow jersey group got small very very quick but Jumba Visma had yeah. some, uh, three guys in there Eric Moss was there this is the guy that basically could barely finish the stage a couple days ago because of gastrointestinal issues and wow, what a day to to make a comeback! That was that was phenomenal. He was yeah, mate, so he, crucial, exceptional at that point to to be helping Julian Alaphilippe. We got to give a little shout out to Julian Bernard, who was off the front of the group. We thought he was going to take the KOM on the top of the Col d'Isoire, only to be caught about twenty five meters before the climb by Caruso and Bardet. And I was surprised to see yeah. Cardo Cardoso sprinting. For the KOM points. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what that was about, but I tell you what, like they caught. If that that would have changed the whole outcome of that jersey, if uh, if those two had been, you know, a couple of seconds. You would have later. thought that the guy would have just said, "Hey, Roman, you got points. You go for it." But you know, in this world of back backdoor deals, you never know if somebody got on the phone yeah. from Sudal Lotto, called up the director from Bahrain Mareda, and said, "Hey, can you try to get the points here?" because we don't want Roman Bardet to leapfrog our guy. You got to wonder, because that was just totally out of character. I didn't see that coming. But Dude, it's all connected. It's all connected. I, uh, I reckon there was a few backdoor deals going on for sure there. Love a good backdoor yeah, but deal. But at this point, Julian Alaphilippe had to have been so stoked to be, be where he was on the top of the coldest ward. Things not totally lighting up. 
we had kind of predicted that maybe it would go just absolutely ballistic on that Ham. stage, uh, on that climb, but it didn't. So he's got to be feeling good, pretty good about himself. He's got a teammate up there. He doesn't have to go back for himself for bottles. He's feeling good. Nothing really has changed. Okay, Nairo's up the road. But then uh, after the cold is ward, Movistar just came off the gas. And man, it was dramatic slowing in the front, which allowed a lot of teammates to catch up, yeah. kept, catch back on. But was this where they pivoted? And, being, and pivoting, pivoting from your tactical plan, I think, is so important. You know, calling that audible on the line of scrimmage yeah. in American football. That's where the biggest plays come from. If you just say, nope, this is how we drew it up. This is what we're going to do. But they pivoted. And was that where they decided to play the card of the Nairo card? I, I think you could be right. Like, because maybe it was sort of like, you know, they lit it up hard when they first lit it up and that group instantly shrunk. And then they kind of came off the gas a bit. So maybe Lander was like, hey, guys, I'm not feeling that good. And then conversely... Up the front, Nara was like, hey, I'm actually feeling all right today. Can you imagine? What do you reckon? You know, what's going through that DS's head up there? With, and I totally agree <laughs> yeah. with you. If, if Lando was good, they would have driven that much, much longer and said, hey, Nairo, you're leaving the team next year. We're, we're going to put, put the hammer yeah. down on these guys. And yeah, at the base of the Glibier, we had guys riding tempo that we haven't seen riding tempo on climbs the entire race. Castroviejo got up there. Dylan Van Barl yeah. got up there. Mate, MVP, Dylan Van Barl's turn, by the way. Like, classic specialist to last, like, last climber for Ineos in the Tour de France, 18 stages deep. That was impressive. It, it, that was very impressive. But I have to say, just the way the group swelled, that there was something going on there tactics-wise. Yeah. Dylan Van Barth, not taking anything away from him, but the way the group swelled after that, you could tell that it wasn't like the normal old team Sky or current team Ineos tempo on the front. That's for sure. But those two guys being up there are two more guys than they had every other mountain stage so far. So you started to think, okay, what, what is Ineos doing here? What is the plan? Is something going to happen? But kilometer after kilometer going up the, the, the Galibier, and I know it's very shallow grade at the bottom, but hey, man, you're at over 2,000 meters a long time the whole day. Mm. If you're going to be riding on the front like that, I would have expected a move from that, that eventually came from, from uh, Bernal. But at the same time, I think it was a little bit late to really make it a difference, to really put the, the panic mode. He attacked, what, 3K from the yeah. top? 3K from the top? It was, yeah, it was, it was right on 3K to go, but on a... On a, on a when you saw how much time he made up and, uh, and when you saw the size of that group when he went, I feel like it was too little too late. And evidently there was a lot of shadow boxing going on. I think a lot of, you know, I think everyone was, was scared. I think before the day, I think Ineos were like, man, we're, you know, we haven't been in this position. Uh, if these guys start attacking us, we might come apart. And so they put themselves, you know, where they needed to be on the front of the bunch and then kind of waited. And I don't know, I, I guess everyone else was, was feeling, the, feeling the, the, you know, the 18, 18 or 17 stages of fatigue in their legs and, and weren't willing to or the altitude, I don't know. But there was a lot of just shadow boxing going but on. I, I did not understand what Ineos was doing there. So Bernal attacks with 3K to go. Great. He could have gone a little bit earlier, but he did not get that big of a gap. And then who's chasing him? But Thomas... 
Yeah. Thomas tries to go to across. That to was him. weird. Like I, I understand maybe, hey, go up to him and then we'll do the descent together. That's great. But when you look back mm. and you have all the other GC contenders on, on your wheel and your teammate is only 30 seconds up the road, you shut it down. You shut it down. But it looked like he wanted yeah. to persist a little bit longer. And man, so much respect to Alaphilippe staying cool there. And you knew, he knew that, man, even if these guys get 30 seconds, 45 seconds over the top, I'm going to still be able to come by them on the descent. And, man, he's, he really dug deep on that climb. But as soon as he crested that climb, it was almost instantaneous that he was back up to the group. But Nairo, that's where in the, those last three Nairo or 4K of that climb, he was just going so fast. And these Colombians, you had Nairo, you had Bernal, Rigoberto was up there. This high altitude stuff is yeah. is right up their alley, no doubt about it. But going over the top of the Glibier, you had Nairo Bardet getting big points again, and in front of Luchenko. And after that, it was basically a time trial down. I'm not a big finish, uh, a big fan of today's finish being downhill after such a great climbing day. Thank goodness it was dry for most of the descent. It was only the last few K mm. where it got a little bit wet there. But yeah, Nairo pulling it out of the bag. Never saw that coming. No way did I see that coming. When he attacked initially, I said, okay, this is going to last 500 meters. But he just, it was his day. And hats off to that kid today. Yeah, absolutely. That group he went out of, they were being really aggressive and he kind of wasn't showing anything, was he? And then all of a sudden, boom, he just went for it and never looked back. So it was a it was a flash of the Nairo of old, which was great to see and uh, a well-deserved, well-executed victory for him. Bardet as well, uh, a little bit of redemption, taking that KOM jersey on that, uh, on that final climb there, which was, oh man, it's got to be bittersweet for a guy like Wellens who's been fighting for this jersey since what the fifth stage or something the sixth I stage think the second and um stage, right or third stage no oh, i know you're right yeah i think he's, yeah, yeah, I think he's right. the only exactly guy that's right. had it has right there's been oh, okay. one before he took it off uh but there was one or Greg two yeah, one or two before, right. but, but for the day for the day um for one day's outing by day takes it off him you just got to kind of be like man that's not quite fair but credit to both those guys credit to wellens for you know uh, go into the sword and uh, and credit to Bardet for not just uh, pulling the plug on the whole thing and leaving the uh, leaving the race for, for everybody Both else. those guys, Nairo and Bardet, who a couple days ago we yeah. just left for dead. And here they are with that yep. positive mental mindset, fighting through that adversity, adversity and coming out on top. Both these guys, one guy with a stage win, one guy with a KOM jersey, which I I'm, I imagine it's going to be very, very hard to take out that off Roman Bardet by the time we get to Paris. Yeah, he's got a sniff of that now, and I think he's going to, uh, yeah, he's going to go all the way. We should mention that Team GC changed hands today. Oh, yeah. Yeah, actually, you're right. That, that again, we, we talked about it yesterday. Movistar had a decision to make yesterday. Do we chase it and defend it, or do we actually just let it come back to us naturally today? And that was that yep. was the case. I mean, they they took it back in quite demandingly, uh, demanding fashion as well. So, yep, I think we need to to say that because man, when you put four guys in the in the front group, yeah. you want that team GC back. And they not only got the team GC back, they got the stage win, and they moved Nairo up in the GC. So, what a day for those guys! I also want to point out how hilariously huge the time gaps are uh, in the 
team's classification. <laughs> like, Movistar were eight minutes behind yesterday. Now they're 20 minutes in front. Um, so, like, that, like when, you, when everyone is so hard fought for, like, five seconds and then Movistar just take 20 minutes in one day. Uh, anyway, I, yeah, it's just funny uh, for me. Let's, let's hear from the superfan. Next up, superfan. Wow. Get strapped in. The next few days are going to be quite a ride. You know, Ian Boswell mentioned during your interview with him the other day that any benefits from altitude training camps done in preparation for the tour are probably negligible at this point in the race. And now the riders who naturally acclimate to elevation might have an advantage. It seems like we saw that a little today with the Colombians, Nairo Quintana and Egan Bernal clearly looking the freshest at the end. Can you go into a little more detail about the benefits of these altitude camps versus the natural adaptations riders who grow up in the mountains experience? Do you think growing up at 5,800 feet in Glenwood Springs, Colorado had an impact on your climbing abilities, Bobby? How about you, Gus? Any elevation down in Australia? Thanks, guys. Super fan. Yeah, as we know, altitude training and altitude camps are very, very important. But there's two different sorts of riders. You have responders and non-responders. Non-responders can go up to altitude and they can do the training and maybe survive the training. But then when they come down, they don't really see that big of a benefit or maybe, maybe even are so fatigued that it was almost counterproductive to go up there. And then you have responders. And let's face it, when you're a Colombian and you're, you're born at 9,000 feet or 3,000 meters or higher, there's got to be some, some genetic things that help you adapt to altitude quicker than a person from sea level, for example. But if, it, it all boils down to, I think, if you're a responder or a non-responder. If, if you do go to altitude... And then I agree with Ian. After three weeks, I think a lot of those initial gains in terms of the numbers of your blood profile may be back down to normal. But you still may be higher than the guy that didn't go to, to altitude at all. But I think the biggest thing about altitude, guys from altitude, especially these Colombian riders, is that they are accustomed to the, feel, the different feeling of riding at those high altitudes. And that's what it boils down to. To a person who's a non, non a non responder or a person that doesn't climb at those altitudes very often, man, it's a totally different feeling. You feel like you feel like you just have no power in the legs. You may be going the same speed or staying on the wheel, but you just don't feel good. These guys actually probably don't feel that great until they get to those higher altitudes, and they're so used to it that I'm sorry, we saw a gear from Nairo Quintana today that we have not seen at all this entire tour. And it was all once it started going over 2000 meters. So, you know, growing up in Glenwood Springs, Colorado was great, but when I moved down to sea level, you know, things, things change, but these guys seem to be able to, to jump up and, and be ready for these big mountain, mountain climbing days. To answer your question, uh, super fan, no, there isn't really any altitude in Australia. Um, but I spent a lot of time actually in Colorado, um, and that's kind of where I live now, uh, part time. And so I did, yeah, I did train a bit at altitude as a kid, and I noticed a, a big difference. Um, and I quite, I quite like the uh, the alpine training regime, um, but certainly uh, never of the caliber that we're seeing out there today. Aww. Today's theme. Uh, solo off the front. And I forgot to mention, I got so excited about today's stage. 
at the head of the show that I forgot to mention uh, our special guest today, Jens Voigt. Uh, we've, we've got him back on the pod as he is the master of the solo breakaway. And today, Bobby, we saw a bit of a masterclass of the solo breakaway. Um, I have a question before we hear from Jens for you. <clears throat> and you kind of addressed it uh, earlier on in the, in the, in the, the, the podcast when we are talking about Movistar's tactics. A stage like today, when you're putting Nairo in the break, are they going, yep, he's going to go on the last climb and he's going to want, this, want to win this solo? Or is he, are they putting him in there and just kind of like, let's suck it and see and see what happens? I think it's definitely the latter, especially with what he showed so far. But it did show confidence in him by allowing him to do that and him having the morale to go up there and do it. So maybe he knew that he was going to be much better once we hit these higher altitudes. What about you? Winning solo, what's been, what's been like uh, your biggest solo win or like, you know, tell us about like your, yeah, a solo victory. I know you, you mentioned it before the show. Oh yeah, this is going to be a short list, a very, very short list of my <laughs> solo wins um, because I was a time trialist, a GC rider. So when I got into breakaways, I rarely wanted to go solo. I wanted to have help from the other guys to take time on the other GC contenders and then just basically set them up for the time trial. So I was one of those guys that rode all the way to the line. I was always contributing much more than I should have compared to someone that wanted to win the stage. So as sad as it sounds, after 16 years as a pro, I got to put my hands up crossing the finish line one time in my whole career. Once. I won, I won some races, <laughs> but most of those were time trials. So that's solo off the front too, right? Does that count? <laughs> I mean, I guess so. It's a solo ride. Yeah, when you win, <laughs> technically speaking. But no, I hate to say it. It was one time, and it was 1997, Route de Sud. I attacked a, a group of about 20 guys that we got away in a big breakaway on the first day. It was before the tour, so once that break got away, everyone else kind of just put up the parking brake. And I attacked from about 2 or 3K out and won the race. But I don't think it was by more than a bike length because the, the guys in the group came behind me. And luckily, the, the line came yeah the oh, really? line came from behind. So if, you, if anyone found a picture of that, that is probably the only time I put my hands up in the air. But I was very lucky that it wasn't 10 meters longer or else I would have been passed by Cedric Vasseur and Ekimov, Vyacheslav Ekimov. Mate, it normally goes the other way. It normally, it's normally the, the, the breakaway rider that gets caught within feet of the line. Um, so you're on the right side of uh, you're on the right side of history there. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> I do have one question as well, um, which I think is kind of curious for people watching. It certainly, you know, um, and and today was a good example. We saw a guy like Lutsenko. Uh, and Greg Van Avame, right, who are bigger guys, not you wouldn't typically class them as climbers, out climbing um, a guy like Yates, right, um, particularly in this case Lutsenko. And I wanted to, like, I know there's a lot going on, um, you know, that, that goes into a breakaway, but for people, you know, you look on, on paper and you're like, it's a climbing day. We've got a bunch of, you know, there's these climbers in the breakaway and then there's these guys who are more, you know, kind of bigger, not suited to the high mountains. Can you kind of describe how someone like Lysenko could find himself at the front in a, in a stage like today and not Yates? Well, let's just face it. It's the 18th stage of the Tour de France. Um, the, the normal profile, rider profile, is thrown out the window. 
a guy like Greg Van Evermet, who his team hasn't done so much, and he's feeling good, and he's thinking about you know putting in some good work at the end of the tour, thinking about the the, the races to come, versus a guy like like Adam Yates, who wanted to win this race and is obviously just not firing on all cylinders. So when you look at the guy's names, yeah, you would imagine that Adam Yates would be minutes ahead of a guy like Greg Van Evermet or Luchenko. But it's all morale and it's all fatigue, cumulative fatigue right now. And these classics guys, that's why they're so good at classics is because they just keep fighting. And they want to give their best. They want to have their, their jerseys on, on TV. They want their, their family to see them. And I think that gives them the, the confidence and the morale to push themselves harder than they normally would. When a guy like, like uh, Adam Yates, when he is not able, his body is not able to respond to what he, his mind wants to do, then he just loses his morale and put, pulls up the parking brake. And that's, that's very difficult to come back from uh, when you're when you're that deep in the hole, yeah, I you could see that today. He was uh, he was lights out when it went lights out. He didn't want a bar of it. Should we move on to uh, today's featured guest? We've had him on the pod before. He definitely doesn't need an introduction. Uh, and given today's theme, the solo break, he's probably considered one of the masters of that. Jens Voigt, second time on the pod. That's a first time for us. How you doing, man? Yes, hello to everyone, and I'm honored to be part of this. Nice, nice. Now, today we're talking long solo moves, and uh, and with you being uh, a, a connoisseur of the solo move, Bobby thought it best to get you on the phone and uh, and kind of ask you a few questions on, on how to master the break. Alrighty, feel free, just shoot the questions at me. All right, Yenzi. This is going to be fun. So, you know, I was in the bus with you quite a bit. Before we get into the actual move, can you give us just a rundown or like what you would do in the bus to get ready on those days that you knew, hey, I'm going in the breakaway today or hey, I'm going to try to win this stage. I think the listeners would really enjoy hearing kind of like how you got yourself up for those days. Well, if you're really serious, you want to go on a break or go for a stage win, you would cut down a little bit on the coffee at breakfast, but then have double the coffee in the bus just before the stage to get like really like hyped up. You would look at the stage, look at the profile of the first kilometer and try to find a place where I think the break is going to go there. Then what I always did is I had one whatever muesli bar, cereal bar in a neutral zone between you know the start and kilometer zero where the race really starts so then having this one big bar in my belly that gave me a chance to race flat out for an hour at least without having to worry about any food i would bring an extra bottle as well empty that one bottle in these two three four five miles of neutral start so I was, I, I just wanted to make sure I had enough liquid, enough energy in my body. I could race flat out for an hour at least to make that break without having to worry about getting back for a bottle or finding a bottle or finding food. You had to be ready at kilometer zero and you had to look at the race like as if your race, your stage finish is at the moment when you catch the break. And once you're in the break, you reassess and then you make up a new plan. 
But your first, oh, at least in my case, the first and only plan was to make the break at any cost. And then you take the day as it comes. You don't have to think if I spend so much energy to go on the break, I'm going to be absolutely tired for the rest of the day. No, no, no. That's just not what you need to do. You need to focus. The break is the only goal of the day. And then you set another goal after you actually successfully made the break. So yeah, tons of coffee. Maybe put Metallica on Master! Master! on your little uh, iPod or iPad. You know, I, I don't even remember the name of the song, but the lyrics go, it don't feel good or doesn't feel good until it hurts. That's <laughs> the mentality you got to have when you go out there. You want to make the break at any cost. Yeah, Jens, you, you were a special being. Um, at the beginning of your career, I remember uh, Credit Agricole, uh, even on GAN, you would be one of those guys that would attack and people would just kind of let you go. Like, oh, it's, it's this young kid from Ghan or Credit Agricole. But then year after year, you would make these things stick. And one thing that I couldn't ever, ever really fathom was the mentality of the guys that were in the breakaway with you. Did they really think they had a chance against the great Jens Vogt? Were you just sitting there like wringing your hands, already assessing like, okay, I'm gonna, this guy is strong. This guy's a little bit stronger. So I'm going to drop this guy first, then this guy, and then I'm going to go solo. Like, you know, tell us, tell us the, that, that tactic once you did get in the breakaway of what sort of things were going through your mind. What were you thinking about? And were these, th these guys just basically helpers for you because you knew you were going to drop them anyway? Well, there were definitely breaks where I would feel like the snake and all the reverence would be working for me. I'm like, oh my God, I'm so going to eat you by the end of this day, but please help me. Please work for me. So there were definitely days where I like, why would these guys work with me? I mean, they have no chance. Why would he help me to, to look good? Why would he help me to actually win another stage? Yes, we had days like that. But we also, I had also breakaways where I was basically the most terrible shit kicker in the break. I mean, I was in breakaways with world champions, Olympic champions, whatever, Tour de France, Giro Italia stage winners, where people were just confident that he would beat me, right? Uh, so I had these sort of breaks as well. Um, every, every day is different. Every break is different. But yeah, I prefer the breaks where I, I would be just, smiling inside and just going oh my god i can't believe you're gonna carry me to my next win and i'm just gonna be laughing and going thanks for coming thanks for coming my friends so yes i had some of these breaks as well and it lasted for a very long time in my career that people would still believe ah it's just old yenzi we're gonna beat him so yep i was happy the way it worked out for me that's for sure we remember because we, you know we could hear a lot of the stuff over the radio when you were up in the front and, you know, your teammates, myself and the other guys, we would just sit there and go, do these guys know what they're in for? And other English speakers in the Peloton, we would just kind of congregate and just say, man, we are so happy that we're back here and not in that breakaway with Jens, because you know the inevitable is going to happen. Jens is going to find that special little mojo, and at that special time, he's just going to hit you, and, you know, your time in the breakaway was for nothing. But when you were kind of off solo when you did make that move were you riding to power sensations or were you just pure anger because you have to be angry to do it seems like you're the most nicest guy on the planet 
but it seems like you had to have been drawing some motivation from somewhere because it was scary. I mean, come on. A lot of the times you'd have a full Peloton chasing you or at least a couple teams and you they would never see you again. Um, well, longer answer coming up here now, but let, let, let me start with this. I am good now. The world is safe now, but I had times in my life where I was happy that I was in cycling because I was actually paid to bring the herd to other people. I was paid to release my demons in cycling and people cheered me up for putting, bringing pain to other people. Now I'm good. I'm happily married, man, life is good. But I had times where I was happy that I actually get all my anger out in a safe and controlled way, right? Periods in my life. Um, so yes. Uh, when I went on the bike, I actually could get or had the tendency sometimes to get myself in a really yeah angry, aggressive mood. Anger releases a lot of energy. You'll be surprised how much extra energy you find when you're really angry or mad. You cannot do it all the time because it's negative energy. You got to have it saved for the right moments, for the right days. Because if you lift too much of negative energy, it poisons your soul. Every now and then, it gives you a super extra boost in power and energy. But you got to save it for special moments where it really counts. Um, I believe my talent was the desire to win, and I had a big engine. I mean, I was never as good as you in the mountains. You beat me in time trials all the time. All I had was just the desire to win and the ability to suffer for a very long time. And that just made me a breakaway specialist. Yeah, I, I really can't explain to this day the energy that you would have. You were like the Energizer Bunny. And, you know, this only didn't just come out in the races. This came out in training camps. I remember one time we were down in California. Uh, I, think, I think we were doing it in Luca. And we were doing the team time trial stuff. And we were doing three groups of what was called Medio, which let me tell the listeners out there, it wasn't medio. It was basically full gas. And we started in three groups and I was in the first group and I was kind of controlling the guy saying, Hey guys, this is a medio effort. It's not a maximum effort. Then, you know, the competition gets a little bit heated between the groups. And I remember your group, you were the second group, you caught us. And as you came up, you just had the, these red eyes and you yelled at us. And that was when we had speed play pedals back when they were first starting. And you came up to us and said something that I'll never forget. You said, guys, see those little red things on the bottom of your shoes? They're called pedals. You have to push them. And we just were shocked. We're absolutely shocked. Like, this guy's taking this for real. Like, calm down, bro. Oh, yes, I do remember that. Yes. And I think to make it even worse, I think I left my group behind. I jumped across to your group just to tell you. I, said, <laughs> I, I, I kind of like closing, closing, closing it down to a breakaway. I jumped across to your group and I went, hey, guys, yeah, these little things underneath your shoes, they're called pedals. You need to push on them in order to move forward. Yes, I do remember that. Yeah. Classic. <laughs> Classic. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> Gus, jump in here. I'm sure you have, you know, it's a little biased me asking all the questions because, um, you know, I know this guy like a brother. I do have a couple of, uh, well, a question for you, Jens. Um, you seem to be out the front most of the races you did. And I was wondering, I know how boring it can get 
just sitting back there in the bunch. But being out there alone, man, does it, how, like, first of all, is it boring? And second of all, if it's not, how do you occupy your mind and how do you kind of keep yourself on task? Because I imagine it's pretty easy to get distracted. Well, you know, you, you're going for the win and the odds are always against the person in a breakaway because there's 120 mm-hmm. or 170 riders chasing you. So the odds are always against you. So you try to focus on the job at hand. You go, okay, what's the next mountain like? What's the descent like? You know, how do I take this corner in the best possible way? Can I get some windshield if I move far to the left of the road? If I stand next, if, if I ride my bike really close to the spectators, do I get a bit of wind shelter from them um you think about eating drinking the right gears you know trying to be as aerodynamic as possible so you try to do to do everything as perfect as possible in order to you know maybe to make it um so that that occupies your mind sometimes if you're out in the open plains and there's nothing really what happens is the last song you heard in the radio before you left the team bus place in an endless replay in your mind and can you believe one time that last song was woman in love by barbara streisand <laughs> so i had you know, i had woman in love for like two hours in my head that was not good um and um yeah then you, you just uh, try to get information from the team car who is chasing which teams how seriously are they chasing? So there's a lot more things going on in your head. And when you see there's a real chance of making it, sometimes I would just make plans how I would celebrate. Do I raise both <laughs> arms, classic pose, both arms, just one arm? Do I do something <laughs> funny? Like positive motivation, positive thinking. You know, I'm going to make it, no question. But how will I celebrate this win? So just to keep you in a positive mood and trying to keep you believing into it. Oh, man. That you even had time to think about that. You are yeah, one lucky no. bugger. You are yeah, one exactly. lucky bugger. The guy um, is considering his victory su- salute multiple times in his career is, is a good bike rider. Okay. There's a lot of guys out there that emulate you. Who, in your opinion, and we're going to put you on the top of the list of one of the, you know, the best breakaway specialist guy. Who, since you retired, or who that you race with when you were riding, would you put up there on that Jens Vogt best solo attack artist of all time? I would think one of, one of the first person coming to my mind and the good guy on top of it, Sylvain Chavanel. The guy is strong as a horse, never gives up. He had a few really successful breakaways. Sylvain Chavanel, Thomas Föckler would be up there. And hey, of course, Thomas de Gendt. I think Thomas again even once mentioned my name, saying, when I'm in a breakaway, I think about how he did it, how Jens did it, and, you know, that you just never, just you always have, have to believe in yourself. So these three people would be on top of my list to be in the breakaway with. Okay. And final question. I witnessed a lot of these days, and what would you consider your hardest solo win or your longest solo win? As I remember, geez, in the Tour de France and Criterium International, come on, you did that, what, five years in a row on that morning stage, you would just say sayonara from kilometer zero, and we we knew we'd never see you again. 
But then also there's that that beautiful stage that you won going over Independence Pass in the Tour of Colorado. But what would you consider your maybe your best win or your hardest win? Well, the best thing about that long breakaway, I think about 100, whatever, miles breakaway or you know, 140 kilometers. So I was 120 kilometers in a breakaway, solo breakaway in, in Colorado over Independence Pass. The best time, the best thing about that breakaway was Lindsay Fawn handed me the trophy. I got a chance to kiss Lindsay Fawn on both cheeks. Man, that was just <laughs> my highlight. You know, I kissed Lindsay Fawn. How many people can say that? Right? <laughs> so that was pretty good. But I guess one of the best wins was the one in Tour of California into Avila Beach. We were in a really strong group, 25 people. We had Peter Zagan in the group, reigning world champion Tor Hushok, Michael Matthews in that group, Baden Cook, Tyler Farrar, uh, TG Van Gardel, a lot of GC riders and top sprinters. And I managed to get away and they didn't catch me and I couldn't believe it. And I, I just did an interview now that I'm working for NBC for television. I did an interview with Michael Matthews. And um, after we finished, he went, you know, Jens, I still cannot believe you won that day in Avila Beach. We all know, we all knew what you're going to do. And we still couldn't stop you. So that is probably one of my best wins. We had triple world champion Peter Zagan in the break. Reigning world champion Tor Hushoff. And I still managed to sneak away and win with just seven seconds. And I was 42 years old by that time. So I was the oldest rider in the peloton. I believe that was one of these moments where I thought, wow, that was pretty cool. Mate, you are a legend. And uh, we appreciate you so much for coming on the show. Um, you know, I like the bit where you said you kind of get out there and you exercise some demons. Well, I reckon there was a few people that you've given demons to as they've turned their head around once they've made it in the break and they see you coming across last man. <laughs> so, mate, appreciate it. And have a great uh, have a great last few days at the tour. Thank you. Thank you very much. And hey, you know, one thing that always kept me motivated, the biggest hockey player of all times, Wayne Gretzky, he always used to say, I missed 100% of the shots I never took. And that's how I went out there, you know? You never know how it ends. There's always a little chance you're just pulling it off. So that was my motivation. All righty, thanks for letting me be part of this. You guys have a nice day. Take care, Yenzi. Take care. Jens, always love talking to that guy. Let's, uh, Bobby, tomorrow, stage 19, I want to hear, uh, hear what we're going to be looking at because I don't think it's going to be good. It's another death march. Saint-Jean-de-Murienne-Tatinia. We have three climbs for the day. They basically start and do not stop climbing for about 90 kilometers. It, when you look at the profile, it's basically a gradual to average gradient for 90 kilometers. As if these guys haven't done enough climbing, they aren't tired. Man, if this goes from the gun, it's just going to be so difficult. But I think everyone is, is tired. But this being a short stage, we got to think about it. It's only 126.5 kilometers. So it's going to be active from the start. So we have a cat one, uh, or I'm sorry, the first KOM is a cat three at 25 kilometers. Then we have a cat two at 38 kilometers, a cat three at 63.5 kilometers. So you call those snacks, right? Those are just little snacks. 
Dude, they're just, yeah, they're just like, you know, like on your way to breakfast, just a muesli bar, just, yeah, pre-breakfast. Okay, but make sure not to eat too many of those snacks because after the sprint <laughs> at 68.5, boom, you have the the souvenir Henry de Grange, which basically means it's the highest climb in the tour. That's kilometer number, uh, KOM number four, horse category climb at 89 kilometers. It's only 13 kilometers at 7.5%, you know, and to throw even more onto that, it's (laughs) where the time bonus is. And you never know what this tour is going to come down to. I think it could come down to a matter of seconds. So if there's time bonuses on the line and there's the souvenir Henry de Grange honor on the line, we may see some serious throwdown on that climb. That's for sure. And then, yeah, you have a descent for the first time in 90 kilometers. You have a little bit of a descent. And then you hit the category one, uh, Monte de Tigna. Monte de Tigna is the, the final climb. And again, you're peaking out at over 2,000 meters. This KOM is actually 2K from the finish. So that tells you that the climb kind of stops oh. and then it, there's 2K flat at the top. So if the group is together you're not only going to have to have the juice to get loose on the last kilometer of that climb, but you're going to have to solo off the front to finish the stage. So I think it's, as far as tactics go, who knows? As far as who's going to win, who knows? Everybody has a chance. We haven't seen a Tour de France like this ever, I think. It is just so much fun to watch because no one knows, especially from the last you know, six, seven years where it's pretty much determined by now and all the guy has to do is, is kind of follow. But we've got a lot of guys that could make, could do anything. You know, what is Movistar going to do? What, what, is, what, is, what is the guys from, from um, Jumbo Visma going to do? What is Ineos going to do? Today, I don't think they knew what they were doing, to be honest. But there's so much on the line. And here we go. Julian Alaphilippe. starting stage 19 of the tour in yellow what yeah i don't know there's not i'm speechless you know we keep saying he's going to lose it and he hasn't i'm gonna i'm he's not going to lose it tomorrow i don't think i i can't bet against him anymore i love watching julian alaphilippe i think he is basically rocketed up to the number one most popular cyclist in the peloton not only with his classic performance and dominance but now so there is no way I'm betting against this guy tomorrow. I want to see him just do something crazy and actually hang on to it. I'd love to see that. And I don't want to be that guy that, that jinxes him and says he's, he's going to lose it and he actually does lose it. But hats off to him and all these guys just giving it their all. Like you said yesterday, that axe head is on the downward swing and let's just hope we get two more great stages of this of this Tour de France. Yeah, I think we're guaranteed guaranteed a couple of great days. Uh, as you said, look, like I'm going to put my my prediction. I mean, it's almost it's impossible. So I'm just going to throw Lander out there because like you'd be you know as likely to throw almost any of the top 15 riders or top 20 riders' names out there, and and you'd probably be. But fine. if those guys ride um, the way they they rode today, basically negating each other. All the teams had yeah. their had some team support. No one was isolated except um, mm. Bokman. Bokman was a little isolated there, but that could actually play to his advantage on a stage like tomorrow. 
I think if someone wants to do something, they have to be willing to lose the tour, to lose everything. Yeah. To go for the win. Because it's going to take somebody taking an uncalculated risk to make the difference. And who's that going to be? Man, I hope it's Alaphilippe. But if they ride and basically cancel each other out like they did today, Alaphilippe is getting closer and closer to Paris. Looking good. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, someone's got to do something. I know we keep saying that, but like they actually do if they want to win this tour. And I'm happy for Alaphilippe to win this tour. He's, you know, well-deserved. But I'm sure that in the next couple of days, we're going to see some uh, some guys just throw hell, hell to leather, according to the wind. We saw today, you know... Uh, uh, Quintana picked up five minutes. Um, so, hey, you know, there's plenty. You know, there's plenty of guys that could do with five minutes that puts them right back oh, yeah. in the race. So, who's your prediction for tomorrow? L- Lander, I think Lander. I think I just think he's just a wild man. So, I think he's going to go. He's going to put it all in or nothing. Okay, I'm going to go with Bardet. I never, ever, 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 ever thought yeah, I'd be saying call. that, but he now has the KOM jersey. His morale is sky high. Yes, I know he was in the, the break all day today, but he's going to go chase those points. I think some sort of mm-hmm. tactical stalemate is going to happen, and they're going to kind of forget about him, and he's going he's gonna to solo off the front to the win. Interesting. That's not a bad call, actually. I can see the logic there. Well, I guess time will only tell. Bobby, thank you so much. Fantastic show again. Uh, always a pleasure. To our listeners, thank you guys. You've, uh, you've kept us up top all the Tour de France. And as we wind down, we want to go out with a bang. So please keep tuning in, spread the word. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to uh, Put Your Socks On on iTunes uh, and SoundCloud. Head on over to velonews.com for all of your cycling info and if you want to catch the show there as well. We'd love to hear from you. Reach out at, to us, uh, superfan at velonews.com. On social media, bobby.julik and at thatisgus. Bobby, thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. Thank you too, Gus. Thanks, everyone out there. Get ready to buckle up your seatbelts, and let's look forward to another great stage in the Tour de France. But first, don't forget to put your socks on. Nice. Yeah, I can fuck you that. <laughs>